Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today's conversation will focus on the investment case for China and the investment approaches to consider along with the associated risks. My guests will also share their views on China's macroeconomic environment as well as the geopolitical landscape, including China's relationship with the U.S. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome to the forum from Rayleigh and Global Advisors, the firm founder, chairman, and chief investment officer, Dr. Jason Su. Uh, joining us here from the UBS chief investment office, glad to welcome back Alejo Zermanco, chief investment officer for Emerging Markets Americas. Uh, Jason, Alejo, it's great to be with you both. Looking forward to our conversation, hearing your perspectives, and thank you as well for spending some time with our listeners. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. So there's many directions we can go in with this topic, Jason. Curious to hear your vantage point on this. There has, of course, been a lot of focus over the years on the strategic, collaborative, and at times adversarial relationship involving the U.S. and China. So how do you anticipate this economic trade dynamic between these two nations will evolve over the balance of this decade, the 2020s, and thoughts on where it stands today? I think there are a lot of people out there who would like to uh, believe that the China-U.S. relationship will go the way of the you know, China-Soviet Union relationship, taking us to Cold War 2.0. I think that's a, that's a mistake in terms of the mental model we're using to understand that relationship. I think a better one is to think of the co-opetition between U.S. and Japan during the 80s. And I grew up during the 80s, and that was the time when everything was made in Japan. And the big fear was the rise of Japan uh, and how Japan was taking over all the jobs and uh, taking over the U.S. soon. But the fact of the matter is uh, that relationship looks very similar to the relationship today. And the emergence of Japan was actually great for global consumers and ultimately great for Japan and great for the U.S. I think that's the same thing for the U.S.-China relationship. We're a consumer-driven economy. China is a manufacturing-driven economy. We need each other, right? We want to consume what's produced cheaply in China. Uh, And so, you know, it's a win-win relationship, and it's hard to break a win-win relationship. Another way to think about it is U.S. is really the scientist. We own a lot of the creative thinking outside of the box IP. China is really the engineer, you know, drafting off of U.S. innovation, but making it cheaper, uh, making it faster, and making it slightly better quality. Again, it's a win-win relationship where we both win from trading, win from collaborating. So my my guess is, yeah, there's going to be a lot of fear as China emerged, but ultimately there's simply too much of a good thing going on between the two superpowers uh, for the tension to take us awry. I just remind listeners that the Chief Investment Office has put out a number of white papers on this topic over the last year. Our bottom line is that U.S.-China relationships will remain quite rocky and likely worsen in in coming quarters. Um, We need to recognize that we're moving from a unipolar world in which uh, the U.S. really called all the geopolitical shots for uh, at least three decades into a multipolar world in which uh, geopolitical economic power needs to be shared between uh, the U.S., Europe, and China. A multipolar world is prone to more frequent 
conflict um, because each of the um, competing powers is looking to become the most influential power out there. I think this is a reality we'll have to coexist with for quite some time. Uh, this is, of course, a challenging environment for investors. Uh, frequent flare-ups, higher volatility um, are going to be a more commonplace. At the same time, I fully agree with Jason that you know the Cold War and complete decoupling are poor analogies. Um, the U.S. and China are, from an economic perspective, tied at the hip. When you think about how much the U.S. has imported in terms of Chinese goods so far in 2022, we're talking about $320 billion. This is massive, right? The interdependencies are real large, and I think we'll continue to have quite a bit of trade, quite a bit of capital flows between the two countries throughout this period of geopolitical volatility. Um, so in some then, uh, tensions flare up slightly, particularly as political stars shift within the U.S. in the midterms, within China in the Communist Party Congress that will take place in just a few short days. Um, but, you know, these countries will coexist and there won't be a new Cold War. There won't be a complete decoupling. When you consider the complexity, the size of the Chinese economy, putting money to work, it could be a daunting proposition. I'm curious, Jason, what's your investment case for putting money to work in China? And what might be some avenues of opportunity that one should consider or that stand out from your vantage point? First and foremost, when we think about um, investing in China, we're certainly taking more risk. And the reason we're willing to take that additional risk is because we want to buy growth. We want to buy growth that we can't currently buy in the U.S. in developed markets. And very much so, if you look at data, the last 15 years, um, China grew its GDP at 9%. But what's more important, what you can buy, which of course are the you know, listed corporate shares, listed onshore and offshore, uh, those have actually grown at about 15% per annum. Uh, so very strong EPS growth. You know, China is one of the few economies where the corporate earnings growth has exceeded the U.S. and that its uh, you know total return on the stock market in the last 15 years has also exceeded that of the S&P 500. So it is in fact a economy where you can buy more growth. Uh, now, when you're focusing on buying that growth in China, you could buy it you know offshore, meaning the U.S. listed ADRs, or you can buy them onshore, which means using Hong Kong Connect and buy the A shares. Uh, and I think that's where investors need to take a deeper look at what kind of growth you're buying. If you focus on buying offshore China growth, it's mostly the technology shares that are listed as ADRs. So it's basically making a very concentrated technology bet. And oftentimes those technology shares are very correlated with U.S. tech shares. So you're not getting any correlation diversification. I think if you really want to get a diversified exposure to sort of the China internal growth, a lot of that is domestic uh, consumption growth. You really need to go onshore uh, using A shares. And there, what you'll discover is across most of the industries in China, uh, it's really been a growth story for all the industries. Uh, even those who are selling just bottled water where there's no technology, no IP, um, those have been driving enormous growth uh, in terms of corporate profits. And that's where I would definitely look is to really focus onshore to buy that uncorrelated China growth.
very much aligned with Jason here. I start by highlighting that in a multipolar world, one that is changing, you don't want to have all your bets on a single horse. Uh, we simply don't know how this will evolve over time, and you want to be diversified geographically, right? And so an allocation to Chinese assets, Chinese equities make, makes a lot of sense um, in this in this um, juncture. In addition, they lower correlation that Chinese assets, Chinese equities offer vis-a-vis global assets, global equities. Um, that has been a staple of um, Chinese exposure. It helps portfolio characteristics. And just to illustrate it with one concrete example, we are in a 2022 in which just about every major economy in the world is tightening monetary policy very aggressively. Uh, China is just about the only major economy in the world that is easing monetary policy um, um, against the grain from the rest of the world. So that is what you're looking for in terms of less correlated uh, sources of sources of returns. And um, valuations are another consideration. Jason highlighted it. Chinese equities are trading quite cheaply. Uh, some of it is justified, of course, given increased uh, policy uncertainty uh, coming out of the country in, in recent quarters, absolutely. But in our analysis, uh, this is already more than reflected in terms of um, the discount that investors are offered to get exposure to Chinese, Chinese equities. And finally, um, emphasize that absolutely H shares, A shares, opportunities in both markets. They're quite different animals in terms of uh, the exposure they offer to sectors, to um, risk factors, and therefore um, both should be considered when building China allocations. Alejo and Jason, thank you for the guidance in terms of investment approach. Of course, it is important that investors know what they're getting into as well as the risks involved. And we'll touch on risks in just a few moments. Before we do that, Jason, just diving a bit deeper into approach with respect. And we're talking specifically here to onshore China opportunity, what that opportunity set looks like. What might be some differentiating qualities or considerations and what should foreign investors be mindful? of when taking that approach onshore. I agree completely with uh, what Alejo just mentioned, which is when you're building a portfolio uh, onshore for China exposure, you got to think carefully what factors are you buying and what portfolio characteristics, what company characteristics. Uh, so you really want to go with an active approach, understanding that the policy shocks are only going to increase uh, when it comes to emerging in, uh, investing in China and other emerging markets. Uh, and additionally, being active makes sense in a market that is dominated by retail. You know, retail trading regularly accounts for about 85% of the trading volume in China. So that's a large and steady reservoir of alpha from people who are unsophisticated, who suffer from a lot of behavioral biases, who often buy into hypes and bubbles rather than buying sound growth companies. And so being active, I think, gives you that additional edge in addition to the beta you're buying that gets you growth, you can also capture quite a bit of alpha representing what uh, essentially, you know, 
retail speculators that market will supply to. Anything else, Alejo, you would like to add in with respect to onshore considerations? Uh, some soft promotion to our white paper, Investing in China Opportunities for Global Investors. That's a nice primer to understand the properties of uh, onshore Chinese equities, offshore Chinese equities, and how, say, offshore is more leveraged towards tech innovation, more a little bit more correlated to global, more exposed to the ADR, American depository receipt, the listing risks. Onshore, on the other hand, more correlated with domestic economic dynamics in China, less exposed potentially to U.S.-China risk, et cetera. To that end, I will point out to our clients listening in, if you are interested in receiving copies of these white papers, you can, of course, contact your UBS financial advisor to receive those directly. They're also located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Uh, Maybe moving into some risk considerations, Jason, when it comes to investing in China, what should participants really be mindful of? A lot of people that investors should avoid China because it's simply too risky. Well, I think it's useful to remind everyone that oftentimes when we invest, uh, we're trying to earn a risk premium. So it's impossible to earn high return without bearing uh, some degree of risk. And so there's absolutely risk in China, and it's just a matter of uh, managing that intelligently. If our views or our experience of risk uh, on China is driven by, by popular media, it's likely that we're actually quite misinformed and we're very backward looking. We're looking at you know, policy mistakes that has already happened, but that's not entirely predictive of what's likely to occur in the future. Uh, so I would say, you know, obviously, the probably the best thing to do is if you want to manage and understand those risks is to read you know, Alejo's white papers to get a deeper understanding of what's actually going on and maybe subscribe to Raylia newsletters uh, where we'll you know, talk about what's actually happening on the ground. We got an office of 20 folks doing research uh, on the ground in China, and that'll really give you a deep insider look. Uh, and I would say, um, you know, in a market where a lot of investors are managing because of the fear driven by headlines, rather than really managing to the true underlying risk, oftentimes there's more fear than risk, and that's where opportunities are created. And I would say. You know, from a tactical perspective, you know, moving from sort of long horizon strategic to short term tactical, that could mean right now there's a real opportunity to buy shares in China at a deep discount because too much fear has been priced into uh, what essentially is the same kind of risk that we've always had between U.S. and China the last few years. Just now it's accentuated through headlines and there's just a lot more fear than the actual risk present. I think we've discussed quite a bit about U.S.-China relationship worsening and that being a risk factor about um, domestic policy in China, regulatory changes in China being being a risk factor. Um, and much ink has been spilled on, on these two items um, in, in recent months. I would just emphasize that there's risks everywhere you you invest, right? Um, uh, in the U.S., in Europe, and in China, the question is how much of this risk is already priced in? How much are you being compensated for the risks you, you take? And um, instead of thinking of Chinese assets as uninvestable, given what's priced in, we think they are unignorable, right? This is not to say that you should have 50% of your portfolio in China by any means, but this is that you should 
probably for most investors not have zero, right? Because of valuations, portfolio construction properties, growth opportunities. So I know we've covered a lot of ground on the segment today, and thank you, Jason and Alejo, for the insights you've provided to our listeners, our clients of UBS. Before we close out, maybe we can hear some final thoughts, takeaways. Alejo, what we can do is give our guest, Jason Sue, the last word. So Alejo, I'll go to you first. Anything in the way of final thoughts or takeaways on this topic you would like to leave our listeners? Absolutely. I think that in a fast-changing world with high geopolitical risk, geographic diversification is imperative. And let me just emphasize that uh, China, given the size of its economy, the innovation that's coming out of certain segments of its economy um, is simply simply unignorable. Uh, the question is, you know, depending on your own personal goals, how much um, uh, you need to allocate to this market. Thank you, Alejo. And Jason, I'll go to you for the final word. Uh, well, Dan, I think uh, I'm going to talk about something more tactical because Alejo mentioned something that is very important that's on a strategic side, right, which is you want to be invested in China for diversification, for the growth opportunity. So let me sort of shift away from the strategic and talk about the tactical. Um, this is a special year, and Alejo has already mentioned in, in a few more weeks, the Chinese Party Congress is upon us. And even though I think we all know uh, Xi Jinping being re-elected as the president is a fiat complete, what is unknown and what everyone's holding their breath for is who are the other top appointees to all the top government posts, regional uh, minister positions, and the top positions at a variety of the state owner, uh, state-owned enterprises. Until that list is known, right now we've been looking at, you know, six months of lamb ducking, right? Basically, no one wants to make any decision, no one wants to do anything because, look, you know, your boss is about to change and policy is about to change. I would say after the announcement, uh, regardless of the kind of government we see, obviously we're hoping to see one that represents more balance, that represents a compromise between the factions, so there's a lot more checks and balances. I would say regardless. The ambiguity would go away, and replacing that is you're going to have new people taking on new positions, new responsibilities, with a lot of scrutiny, a lot of KPI, and we're going to see all cylinders kicking. Everything will kick into gear. The the stimulus, the rate cut that Alejo was alluding to, I think those will come uh, at a much larger scale, a greater clarity in terms of the uh, easing policy, both from a monetary as well as from a fiscal side. And I think there's going to be a lot more pro-growth narrative uh, after October. And I would say that's something for all investors who are looking at China, thinking, you know, when do they want to get in? Uh, I would say, you know, that's a, a pivot point potentially that everyone should pay attention to. Well, Jason Alejo, thank you again for your time and for joining us here on UBS Market Moves. A lot of thought-provoking points, a lot of valuable guidance as one might consider an allocation into China. A lot here to keep track on, and it leaves us with the opportunity to have a follow-up conversation at some point. Though, uh, Dr. Jason Su, Alejo Zerwanko, thank you again for joining our listeners and clients today on UBS On Air Market Moves. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Dan. Thank you, Leo. Thank you for having us. Have a great day.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.